In Genesis 2-7, it's recorded that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his mouth the breath of life. And he became a living being. Happy dust! <laughs> if I had the time to speak um, on, on that text, um, I would show how that passage describes our first um, our first father Adam, created by God out of the dust of the ground. He and his wife Eve, they were happy in God, they were happy in their work, and they were happy with one another. Um, are you and I sons of daughter, daughters of Adam and Eve, are we happy? <laughs> very often, well, we're not very happy. We're not happy with God. Uh, we're not happy with our work, and we're not even happy with one another. And, and there's a reason for that. Now, there's an explanation. And um, for that, we progress from chapter 2 to chapter 3 of Genesis, where we read how um, God speaks to Adam these portentous words. He says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now the happy dust of Genesis 2 no longer represents uh, the source of, um, <clears throat> of a happy life, but rather uh, an ignominious death and futility. And so um, the sermon title is more is sort of a sad title. Um, the futility of fallen life. Dust and ashes, the futility of fallen life. So we'll need to turn to Genesis 3. You know, this is a real simple sermon. Um, it's a gospel message. That's what you get from me anymore. So, um, uh, so you'll know that now. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. But we, we did need to read this chapter just to refresh our minds. <clears throat> These early chapters of Genesis are so important. Here now God's word, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the, the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate then <clears throat> the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed leaves together um, and made for themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, uh, I heard the sound of you in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring, bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he should reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. O Lord our God, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things on the wall. <clears throat> well, Arthur Pink once wrote that the divine record of the fall is the only possible explanation of the present condition of the human life, uh, human race. It alone accounts for the presence of evil uh, in a world that is um, made by a beneficent and perfect creator. It affords the only adequate explanation for the universality of sin. And there is no empire, no nation, no family, and no child, no matter how carefully guarded, that is free from sin. The divine record of the fall alone explains the mystery of death. Reject Genesis 3, and we face an insolvable enigma. Accept it, and we have an explanation that meets all the facts. It explains the unhappy world we live in, and yet at the same time, points us to a most encouraging hope. So, first sin, separation 
and the ultimate futility of fallen life. The temptation that uh, the serpent set before innocent Eve was the temptation of autonomy. And it's important to understand that, uh, that they could be independent, uh, by which I mean they, that Adam and Eve could be independent of God, that they could be like God himself. Uh, the serpent suggested that. It would never have entered into the minds of Adam and Eve without this malicious uh, suggestion. He told them that God was deliberately, deliberately keeping them in the dark, but they could have knowledge. They could rule themselves. They could they could be like God. They could decide for themselves what was right and wrong and what was best for themselves. Autonomy, independence, uh, that is the way the enemy represented the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, it was all a great and wicked lie, a wicked deceit. No one, no one can be like God. But to the malleable heart of Eve, that forbidden fruit was fair uh, to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, and so she took it, <clears throat> and she ate it, and she very easily convinced Adam to do the same. Now, there's no question that the serpent is a manifestation, was a manifestation of the fallen angel who made himself an enemy of God, who hated God, and who hated the apple of God's eyes, this innocent couple who was so beloved of God. What better way to strike at, 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 at God um, could there have been for Satan than to turn away his precious children from his heart, to, to come between God and his creation, to, to nudge Adam and Eve into rebellion, filling their hearts with fear and distrust and anger, at the Lord. It must have broke the heart of God, if I can put it that way, uh, to, um, to have discovered what Satan had done. Adam and Eve, when they are, uh, were created to live a life of simple, a simple state of trust and innocence uh, and reliance about God. No, no, they didn't know many things before the fall. They didn't need to know uh, any, know them. Uh, at that point in time anyway, all they needed was to simply uh, trust and love God obediently and keep him first uh, in their lives. The possession of close fellowship with God and with one another and the creation around them and the garden was, was completely and perfectly satisfactory to them. But now, that was all spoiled. And you and I live in the wreckage and spoilage of that day. So the result of sin was um, very immediately evident to them. Even before the Lord comes down to speak to them, they recognized for the first time, uh, for example, that they were naked. And at once they felt a new alien shame, sense of shame and, and, and embarrassment between them. And, and they fashioned coverings for themselves. No longer uh, was there that simple innocence of, of, of love and, and, and they were now awakened in their hearts of seeds of lust and pride and anger and deceit and, and distrust. And not only uh, between one another but also uh, toward God. They knew 
They knew they disobeyed God and they were ashamed and now they were fearful of him. Before, there had been sweet fellowship <clears throat> between uh, themselves, between the creature and the creator. But now Adam and Eve felt only shame and fear and distrust of God. Well, when the Lord comes down and calls them, they're no longer happily waiting for him. Uh, they're hiding. Uh, Adam and Eve uh, uh, were told that the, the sin of Adam and Eve is, is set down in, um, in, in, in Genesis as a fact. Um, this is not a fictional, simple sort of story to get some sort of idea across to us. This is a factual situation. And it helps us to understand the state in which we live. Uh, because sin has affected every one of us. Everything uh, we think and do, and it's replicated and passed down uh, to every one of us. Little children don't need to be taught to be selfish or to take each other's toys or hit each other, do they? Sorry, there are other kids here I could have picked up. <laughs> but, um, you know, you get the mistake of sitting closer. Well, this is true, isn't it? This is just sort of natural. Um, and, and this is the way the world is, isn't it? I mean, that's what's happening right now in Ukraine. Taking each other's stuff and, and, and bullying one another. And, you know, well, it's worse than that, but you see the basic ideas there. And, and so now, the relationship between God and man is spoiled. And, <clears throat> and like Adam and Eve, we are all naturally separated or alienated uh, from God. Moreover, God said to Adam, uh, in forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on the day you eat of it, um, you will surely die. And that is precisely what occurred. Uh, outside of uh, God's merciful intervention, That's all of us are, are dead. Uh, first of all, we're spiritually dead. Um, we're dead to God. We're dead to spiritual things. Our souls are dead to spiritual reality. You try to talk to somebody about these sort of things and they just sort of look at you like, what's wrong with you? Well, a modern man and you're telling me these stories. Well, it describes the condition of our hearts where our souls are dead. We, and, and we have also a, 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 a sentence of physical death to come, which leads to eternal death and eventual a judgment in hell or heaven. All of this hangs over our heads throughout our short lives. And people, even unregenerated people, uh, may even themselves sometimes from time to time sense uh, that there's something, uh, they're distant from God and there's this dry, thirsty life that they're living and they, and they don't really understand it. Um, they're naturally um, disdainful of God and, and distant from God and sometimes fearful of God and sometimes fearful of death. Uh, well, that may be as the day of judgment comes. So, this is what it all comes down to, brothers and sisters. By our rebellion from God, we're consigned to a life of death, uh, of dust and futility. And truthfully, it's a pretty dark picture. Um, having learned the truth, first from Eve and then Adam, God <clears throat> first addresses the serpent. And, and notice there's no questions or debate here. Um, God doesn't invite Satan to explain himself or converse or parlay or offer some excuse. He simply pronounces judgment. 
curses Satan um, and for his own divine purposes he makes Satan mankind's lifelong enemy and even pronounces his eventual destruction at the hands of Christ the seed of the woman who will crush his head verse 15 then God turns again uh, to the man and the woman who each receive judgments that relate to their individual spheres of focus the woman whose life uh, typically will revolve around her family, perhaps husband, children, will endure painful childbirth. Uh, she will also be constitutionally inclined to be inclined to jealous manipulation and conflict with her husband, easily critical of him, easily comparing him unfavorably to some other man. <clears throat> well, the man, uh, for his part, whose life naturally revolves around his work, will now be uh, filled his life and it will no longer be a delight and a source of joy and fellowship with the Lord, but a continual losing battle against the elements of the earth uh, that will now only very grudgingly give forth a, a meager produce. And he will be naturally inclined to be sinfully inclined to treat his wife harshly and unlovingly. His failure to take spiritual responsibility for his family in the case of the actual fall, letting Eve handle the negotiations with the snake. That will be a sin he will typically wrestle with all of his life. Well, in other words, to say it again, uh, with the fall, the life of sinners outside the garden moves from joy and blessing to dust and ashes and ultimate futility and death. God's words to Adam recorded in verse 19, says it all. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and the dust you shall return. So, the futility of life is described in Genesis 3. I'm talking about an unredeemed, unregenerated life, life of an unsaved man. This is not just theology. This is hard facts of life. And you can call it whatever you want. Uh, you can deny the reality of sin. You can deny the very existence of God if you like. You can laugh chapter 3 of Genesis to scorn if you wish. But the brute fact of, of death and the sense uh, of futility and emptiness of life is a cold reality for which men have suffered since the garden. The minister standing at the gravesite across from the casket of the open grave says rightly, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But if that minister is a faithful, godly minister, he might also add these words from Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed in the name of the Lord. For in the face of saving uh, faith, there's much more to be said about uh, about this about this dead man and these these gathered folk, but but of course that's the message of Easter, uh, and um, and the, the empty grave and and the dust that comes to resurrection life. But this morning we're not in Easter. This morning we're in Genesis three, and we need to feel uh, the weight of sin and the curse and the futility of unredeemed life. Uh, God says, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that is a clear truth, clearly seen everywhere and all around us. And yet, God is a God of mercy 
and, and hope. And even in these stark verses of Genesis 3, uh, even in the proclamation, in the midst of the proclamation of the curse, there is a sure glimmer of hope. So let me talk about that. Let me conclude uh, with uh, reference to five hopeful things that can be observed in Genesis 3. And I'll, I'll address each of them uh, rather briefly. Um, we mustn't fail to notice for the first thing the simple fact uh, that it is God who graciously takes the initiative and reaches out uh, to sinful, fallen uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, they hear the voice of the Lord God in the garden and they futilely seek to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. I mean, they had broken uh, the terms of the covenant of works or the covenant of life by deliberately <coughs> eating from the tree which they had very specifically been told not to eat. And God was perfectly within his rights to impose the sanctions of the broken covenant and cut them off without a word. But he doesn't do that at all. What does he do? He comes down and he calls them out and he pursues them and he requires them to present themselves and he deals with them uh, fairly, uh, even graciously, in fact, as we'll see. Uh, Jesus once said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me calls him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or to say it in other biblical words, we love him because he first loved us. Even from the very moment of our fall and disobedience, the Father demonstrated his love by pursuing us, by drawing us back to himself. Hallelujah. The second evidence of God's mercy and grace intruding into the into our futile lives of fallen mankind, and, and you may be surprised to hear me say this, was the curse itself. Uh, for beyond the imposition of justice uh, and uh, overarching purpose of, of, uh, of the overarching purpose of the sanctions and the curses of God, is clearly to drive rebellious Adam and Eve and every one of us back to himself. That's the, much of the purpose of the curse. The, the agony of childbirth, the struggle with children, the conflicts that often arise in human relationships of all sorts, the sweat and toil of daily life, the misery of disease, death, heartbreaking disasters, and yes, the cancerous sense of, of the futility of life. All of, all of this serves to disabuse us uh, of the idea that we can ever be independent of God and to drive us in repentance to the cross. I, I can say it this way. Uh, <clears throat> that, that the sufferings and hardships of life, which are the wages of our sin against God, and which we multiply every day, uh, have at least this one great purpose, that they are above all else God's means, God's design, either to drive you further away from yourself in your pride and your anger and your petulant unbelief and prove your reprobation, or uh, to, to draw you back to himself in repentance and sorrow and, and give you an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, which is it with you. God can use our sin and misery as an act of rescue to drive us um, to himself at the cross. Hallelujah. Now, the third thing that we can't miss 
in the midst of the dust and the ashes is the glorious promise to which I've already referred. Genesis 3.15. Um, he starts, Ur promise, uh, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He's speaking to the serpent. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And, and what is that about, of course, the promise of the destruction of Satan and his kingdom and the victory of the seed of the woman? Right there, in the midst of the curse, is the promise of the ages. Jesus is the seed of the woman, and he's already crushed Satan under his heel at the cross. Victory over death, and in his good time, he will deliver him over. That is, Satan's the lake of fire, and... and um, and he will, uh, while taking his own people to himself in heaven. Hallelujah. Another thing, this makes four. Uh, there's another evidence of God's mercy here in Genesis 3, and that's the cherubim. And that's the cherubim. What are the cherubim all about? Uh, God installs these cherubim to, to guard um, uh, to, to guard the tree, to guard the way back um, into the garden so that Adam and Eve cannot steal back, from which they've been expired, they cannot steal back and eat from the tree of life. That would have been no gift. That would have been no good thing. I mean, this, this tree is synonymous with eternal life. To eat from this tree would mean that they would live forever. So, for our first parents, to have stolen back into the garden and eaten the fruit would not only have frustrated the judgment of God, but would also have prolonged forever the curse of sinful life in a sinful world. Eternal life in the flesh. Ugh. Eternal life struggling with sin. Your sin and the sins of others. Eternal life in this sin-sodded world. That would be no gift, friends. That would be absolutely intolerable. When Christians, especially those who have come to the end of a long, useful life, are ready to die, they're usually uh, quite happy to move on and to do it. <laughs> to move on to life with Jesus and a better life. Endless life in this world? That would not be my dream boat. Alright. Hallelujah. <laughs> Finally, <clears throat> uh, we must take notice of one hopeful and positive detail in Genesis uh, third chapter of Genesis where in 21 <clears throat> we read the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and, and clothed them so God in his mercy and love clothes Adam and Eve with garments of skin, animal skin so in this text what's happening is the Lord God himself for the sake of Adam and Eve, sacrificed animals and covered Adam and Eve with their skin, which reminds us of what? It reminds us of the animal sacrifices ordained of God in the Old Testament age, which clearly point to, which clearly foreshadow the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, you see, that was the first shedding of blood in animal sacrifices. Why would God do that? Well, the Bible says there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Do you see it? God clothed Adam and Eve himself uh, and, and to give us this promise that he would shed his own blood 
that, that he would be our righteousness, that he alone can cover our sin and reconcile us to himself. Adam and Eve, the, the, the autonomous ones, seek to save themselves by their own hand, seek, seek to even cover themselves uh, with useless, useless fig trees, but God intercedes to give them, um, to clothe them in an acceptable manner. Or to say it another way, the rags of our own works, our own righteousness, uh, the works of our own hands can never save us, can never change our hearts or, 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 or cover us from sin and shame and failure. We are strange to God. We're puffed up with ourselves. We're, we're cast out of his presence. We're lost to paradise forever. We need to be dressed by God. We need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ that he provided for his people. So, there's another view in which Genesis 3 takes us in a sort of quiet, understated manner from the Garden of Eden all the way to Christ and the cross and new life forever. Hallelujah. So, <clears throat> these are all evidences then, faint pictures, promises of the grace of God that appears even at the time of our disobedience. God's searching, uh, God's searching heart that pursues blind, lost sinners, the curse that drives us to God, the promise of the Savior to come, the cherubim that keeps us from taking eternal life and inappropriately, and the cherubim that keeps us, and the garment of skins that reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ that covers our sin. Sin, separation, and futility of life are real. It's the dust and ashes for sure. But certain also and real is the glorious seed of the woman who is the Savior. Certain it is that there is a day of resurrection for Christ when he was raised victorious from the grave and the saving work completed and perfectly accomplished. Which fact, which fact his work makes certain the fact that our dust and ashes will be raised incorruptible in our own resurrection on a great and glorious day to come. But you must confess, you must name uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. You must name your sin in Adam and your own sinful heart and cast yourself, throw yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved because Jesus saves. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you for making it so clear in a complicated world that we make so much more complicated uh, with our own foolish intellects. Lord, here is the simple truth, and yet, Lord, so profound. And we thank you for showing it to us. And, and we thank you especially for giving us a Savior in Christ Jesus our Lord. We bless you in his name. Amen. Amen.